Uh, The reading of the Scriptures, I direct your attention to Romans chapter 9, verses 14 to 23. So I invite you uh, to hear uh, the Word of the Lord as we find it here in Romans chapter 9. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, for He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us, whom He has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles." Uh, It is, I think, fairly difficult for uh, many to grasp uh, the majesty and the power of God. Uh, In our case, if we don't like our leaders, we just go vote against them. Uh, uh, But God does not stand for election. He is the eternal king who reigns and rules in perpetuity and who does as he wills, all the time, every time. It grates, I think, particularly on Americans, because of our our political system, democracy. Uh, It also grates upon us because his supremacy uh, touches everything. And it is his vote respecting the salvation of individuals, that is, the decisive vote. We choose to be sure, but before we ever choose, it's his choice that's determinative. In our text this morning, uh, Paul is going to look at two additional charges uh, against God uh, in his dealings with Israel. The first is that God is unjust, and Paul says God is not unjust because he is under no obligation to save anyone. And he is just in finding fault with his creatures because he's the creator. And that role, of course, as you know, uh, is very dangerous to reverse. He's the creator, we're the creature. Uh, Again, context. from uh, beginning uh, Romans uh, chapter 9 to uh, the end of uh, chapter 11, dealing with the nation of Israel. What about Israel as a nation? 
not as individuals, God's always going to save Jews, but is there a, still a national salvation? I think Paul is going to answer that decisively in uh, the text, Romans 9 uh, through, through 11. Um, and he's, uh, in light of the fact that there's no longer a uh, salvation on a national level, uh, has God failed? goes all the way back to verse 6, has the word of God failed? Paul answers, for not all Israel who are descended from Israel. In other words, within the nation as a whole, uh, there are individuals that God's going to save. And they are true Israel. They are constituted uh, in Christ to be true Israel. So in verses 14 to 18, the first charge that God's unjust, and he's not because... No one can place God under obligation. It's important to remember that uh, God deals with us based on our position in the first Adam. And because of the effects of the fall, uh, he, his dealings with us are always judicial. Uh, and therefore, he's just to condemn whom he wills to condemn uh, because of all who are in the first Adam. It's not unjust, he's just. Uh, and therefore free to condemn whom he wills and also free to save whom he wills. Amazing fact of the matter, if you know Christ is your Savior, it's amazing that he saved any of us because he's under no obligation whatsoever. Uh, because he's God. To document this uh, reality, Paul turns to uh, three Old Testament texts which would be important because they're dealing with Jews. So he turns to their scripture, if you will. That, by the way, has all of the truths that our New Testament does in a seminal or uh, uh, germ, uh, germinal form. Uh, they're all present, just clearer to us in the New Testament. First verse 15 is from uh, Exodus 33, 19. It's worthwhile, I think, to turn... Uh, to that text. Uh, so, uh, Exodus 33, 19. The context is the tragic events subsequent to the golden calf incident in which uh, Israel uh, formed and fashioned an idol and fell down to worship that idol. Uh, and because of the tragedy of that, uh, Moses... Uh, has a desire for God to reaffirm his favor to Israel. So this is God's answer, Exodus 33, 19. He said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. So obviously it's no longer a national salvation at that point. And so God answers Moses with the absolute freedom of his will to save whom he wills. Uh, his freedom is absolute. It's also decisive. Uh, notice there's, no, there's really no object. I will save. Uh, doesn't put an object in there. Just save whom he wills to save. Uh, we would call that circular reasoning. Uh, 
um, teacher or professor, if they're on their toes, won't permit you to use circular reasoning to prove a point. Uh, but God is under no obligation to any professor or teacher. He saves whom he wills to save. Uh, that he saves anyone is amazing and an attestation to his mercy because the choice to save is his. Uh, from the divine, uh, Paul in verse 16 shifts to the human. If verse 15 is true as is, his appearance to Moses manifests uh, the object of his salvation. And so what does that do to our concept of willing and running? So then it does not depend upon the man who wills or the man who runs, but upon God who has mercy. So that election, a salvation of anyone, does not depend upon the response of men, their strength, their running, or their willing, if you will. The willing and acting of man is of no basis whatsoever. God is not impressed with our willing and running. I would remind you that he's only impressed with what he has done for us in his son, Jesus Christ. Now, particular context, of course, is salvation. In sanctification, we will and run. Willing and running is very important in sanctification because we, we participate there. But in our justification, we do not participate at all. It's entirely dependent upon the mercy of God. In salvation, it is all of God who is the sole origin and source of mercy. He is the entire origin and source of mercy. There is no other. I would remind you that in our culture, we, we are way too latitudinal. But this is scripture, not culture. We don't learn about the saving acts of God from our culture or other religions. We do from his word, and this is the word of God. God saves uh, based on nothing but his good pleasure, and the entire basis is his choice to save whom he wills. Every other religion at this point is terminally and fatally rejected, out of hand. Not my opinion, not my desire. It's the word of God. He has spoken. This is the way it's done. and It's the only way that it's done. To illustrate this, in verse 17, Paul alludes to uh, Exodus chapter 9, verse 16. Context is uh, the conflict between God and the gods of Egypt, of whom, as you know, Pharaoh was one. So in this case, it's God, capital letter, versus God, lowercase letter. And so, who's going to win the contest? In Las Vegas, they'd be framing odds. No framing whatsoever. There is no contest. Uh, 
the decisive victory of God is seen when uh, Aaron casts down his, uh, his staff and he becomes a serpent and it swallows all of the serpents of the ministers to Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt. And that one decisive act we know before anything occurs, who's going to win the battle? By the way, I would remind you that someday, barring the coming of Jesus Christ and the second coming, uh, the grave will swallow you. It will not hold you if you know the Savior. So God says to the little God, the no God, um, by the way, in and of itself, we know that that's a defeat of Pharaoh. When men take the ascription of divinity, uh, which includes the attributes of divinity, God will destroy them. So God says, for this very reason, I raised you up. So think about it. Pharaoh owes his stature and position, his wealth and his honor and his claim entirely unto the God of heaven and to no Egyptian God whatsoever. Notice the two purpose clauses in verse 17. To demonstrate my power and to exalt my name. That's the entire reason for the existence of Pharaoh. His throne, his stature, his position. God put him there to demonstrate that he was the one true God. He exists for the glory of the only God. And the conclusion of the matter uh, is, uh, is in verse 18 where Paul reaffirms the freedom of God to save whom he wills and to harden whom he wills. So then, he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. Think about it in this sense. For you as an individual, if you know Christ is your Savior, he owed you nothing. He saved you simply because he wanted to and for no other reason. You can't insert your privilege, your status, your power, your patrimony, the fact that you are an American. God could care less. He saves whom he wills. We care about those things. I understand that. God does not. Uh, and he hardens whom he desires. Uh, the concept of hardening is the opposite of salvation. Uh, you and I know that in salvation, he effectually calls us and woos us by his great spirit and over time and in degree wins us unto himself, makes us willing in the day of his power. Vacate his power, none of us would will. The same is true with respect to those who reject him. He will simply harden them and ruin them spiritually. God is not just a savior. He is also a judge to be reckoned with. That God, uh, in this text, is he actively reprobates the non-elect. Uh, 
Paul has already introduced us to that very fact in Romans chapter 1. Three times Romans chapter 1. God turned them over. They rejected God, so he turns them over to folly and to silliness. Three times, God turned them over to their silliness. We sometimes think that at the end of the age, God will judge. No, he judged every day. It's a chilling reality, the majesty of God. I mean, I've heard people say, well, you know, the United States of America is not found anywhere in Scripture, and we're this and we're that. My goodness, if you read the daily newspaper and watch the daily news, it's pretty obvious that God is turning many over in active reprobation. Now, the illusion here, as you know, is to the Exodus narratives where there are some 20 references to the hardening of Pharaoh. This great clash of a little teeny tiny titan with the majesty of the God who is entirely supreme. And the teeny tiny gnat-like Pharaoh owes his very existence to the supremacy of the one true God. Let's, let's look at some of these. Uh, we're not going to look at all 20, obviously, but uh, Exodus, uh, Exodus chapter 4, uh, and verse 21. And Moses is going to be the representative of God in the court of Pharaoh. Uh, by the way, if you're a Christian, you are God's representative of his majesty and glory wherever you live, wherever you work throughout your life. Because he uses men and women and boys and girls. He uses means. So Exodus uh, chapter 4, verse 21. Yeah, I mean, you can imagine Moses is quaking in his boots. I'm going to go up against Pharaoh? You're kidding me. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders which I have put in your power. Notice what God then says to Moses, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. If you are struggling, and certainly uh, how can you not struggle over the concept of divine hardening? Just simply look at the subject of the verb and then the object. Uh, There is, uh, as you know from your study of the book of Exodus, occasion of Pharaoh hardening his own heart. Let's just look at that very quickly. Uh, Chapter 9, verse 34. When Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. My, how oftentimes we see that, do we not? There's a great cataclysm in our world and men quake out of fear, but when the earthquake is over with, we simply go back to life as we know it and forget about God. I once had an aunt, one of my favorite aunts. She said, man, if you were alive in America during the Second World War, when there were great battles, people would flock to church and pray. Today, we just expect we're going to win them. Eh, sometimes we don't, but just be very careful with your expectations. 
with the God of all glory. Uh, but all, all the rest of these descriptions, the hardening references in Exodus, have either God or the divine word as causing the judicial hardening of Pharaoh. If you're still in uh, chapter 9 of the book of Exodus, look at verse 35. And Pharaoh's heart, he hardened his own heart. I grant you that. Pharaoh's heart was hardened. He did not let the sons of Israel go. Now notice the word of the Lord that's superintending everything that Pharaoh's going to do, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. The moment, anytime there's a self-hardening, the moment the word of the divine word of God is interjected, the word is causing the hardening. Because the divine word of God is creative. It does not fail. It does not stop. It does not turn back. God told Moses in Fourth chapter, I'm going to harden his heart. And therefore, I, I, I get it. We, we harden our hearts sometimes. The divine causality should chill us because it precedes our actions. The point for us as Christians is to humble ourselves. This is a God to be reckoned with. Not the God of the Koran. Not the God of the Hindus. God of Scripture, who condescended to reveal himself in the Word of God. So, of course, men harden their hearts. I understand that. They get angry of God. They walk away. Well, if that's how God acts, I'll show him. I'll, I won't go to church anymore. I'll forsake my baptism. That's, uh, that's, uh, that's, that's, that's building your house on sand. Someday the storm will come, and great will be the fall of that house. The point of the narrative is the divine cause. In Romans, it's the divine will sovereignly acting to save or reject. God's going to save Moses. God's going to save his people. And Pharaoh and all of the gods of Egypt are going to be trashed. By the way, I know you studied that book because we've studied it together. There are occasions where uh, the uh, ministers at court um, counterfeit uh, the power of God. It's just false, false religion, fake religion. I mean, that's what all false religion is, a bunch of counterfeits. You and I know the difference because we handle the truth. We know what a counterfeit is. We also know what the truth is. God alone is the only true God who saves as he wills to save. And those whom he rejects, he will, sadly to say, destroy. Say that any sense of pleasure or joy, it's just simply the way God works. It's essential that we proclaim the gospel. Uh, for us, we find safety in Christ. No other place is there safety but the Savior, because he judged uh, the Savior for us, and the Savior took our place. The judgment has to be vented. For us, it was vented radically against Jesus Christ so that we can go free. It's amazing what he did for us. But the point is that he did it. Not that we willed or ran, but his sovereign power. 
as you know, in Egypt, uh, Pharaoh was uh, the incarnation of the sun god. When he died, they would put a scarab. <laughs> I love this story. Put a scarab in his heart. It was used to harden his heart so that he would not have to confess any sin and thereby escape judgment. Man, that's about as fake as you can get. But that's, that's fake religion. I'm not going to confess because I've never sinned. So God hardens his heart while he's alive to demonstrate his power. Before death, God hardens his heart as a pretext for judging him and then destroying him. I, I mean, I would admit to you, I, I understand this is a very difficult theology. Uh, it is uh, rejected by, I don't know, probably most Protestant churches, Catholic churches, Eastern Orthodox churches. But just like I tell people, I'm, I'm halfway on the turnip truck. Just, I'm just reading the Bible. I will harden his heart to display my power, the word of the Lord. People say, well, God can't do that. Well, God did it. I was reading uh, yesterday's paper in the religion section of a fairly well-known minister at a fairly well-known church who, uh, who left that church, uh, resigned uh, for retirement, I don't know, half a dozen year ago. I saw he, he took another posting at a church in Norman. Uh, to proclaim non-dogmatic Christianity. Oh, really? What is non-dogmatic Christianity? Well, let me tell you what it is. No Christianity. Our faith is based upon dogma. That's the whole point of the word dogmatic. In our case, it's a pejorative term. Scriptures, it's a decisively important term. We believe in dogma. Christ is the Son of God. He rose again from the dead, and He will come back and destroy all the enemies of the church. He's delaying to gather His elect. And how does He save His elect? He gives them mercy as He wills to give them mercy. And it is amazing that He saved you and me because he was absolutely under no obligation whatsoever to do anything other than to judge us with Satan and his fallen angels for all eternity. The point is to wed us in humility and worship and service throughout our lives. Uh, by the way, there's no unanimity in the Reformed faith on this matter. Some hold to preterition that God simply permits uh, men to go their own way. Well, it's very clear from the text that God is not permitting Pharaoh to go his own way. He's driving him to reject God. And he's going to drive him to chase after the sons of Israel. To drown them all in the Red Sea. And he's the one who drowns very difficult, I think, to wait upon the Lord, to wait for our eternal salvation. I mean, the older we get, we say, Lord, you have to hurry up and come. He'll come in his own time.
In the interim time, he is saving whom he wills to save. By the way, if you're not a Christian, he only saves one way, and that is through Christ. There's no other way. And may God be gracious to you and give you the willing to flee to him because there is safety in no other place. And Pharaoh knows that and learned it before it was entirely too late. He was so caught up in his own culture and the religion of his culture means nothing to God. In our text, um, there is no preterition. Here God is the subject and God is the actor. The outcome is entirely his. It's a God that we worship and serve. Thank God we can be confident because of Christ our Redeemer. Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 4. The Lord has made everything for its own purpose. Everything. Even the wicked for the day of evil. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 23 to 24. See, who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless, Scarcely have they been planted, scarcely have they been sown, scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth, but he merely blows upon them, and they wither, and the storm carries them away. It's in part a lesson that God controls our eternal destiny. And he's not subordinate to our will. Our will is subordinate to his We're totally dependent upon him to save. If you know Christ, you know that. And you also know the amazement that he will to save you. That's the point of Romans chapter 8 and verse 30. We've studied this text. Whom he predestined, these also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Illustration for us as Christians, the fear of the Lord. If God saves whom he wills, and uh, it's not an individual apprehension that saves us. It's his apprehension. Second charge is how can God find fault for who resists his will? Because he's sovereign, verses 19 to 23. In other words, in our culture, that's not fair, God. Uh, Try that. It won't wash in eternity. Of course, God does not owe subordinates answers. And Paul answers, of course, in the Old Testament, the potter clay motif. Allusion is to a number of texts. Uh, Isaiah 29, 16. You turn things around, he tells Israel. Shall the potter be considered as equal with the clay, that what is made should say to its maker, He did not make me? Or what is form say to him who formed it? He has no understanding. I mean, that theology is awash in our culture today. God, I self-define my own gender. I'm the one who's determinative. Try that and see if it'll get you into eternity. God's the creator. He defines. We don't define ourselves. Isaiah chapter 45, 9. It's 
again, another place or potter clay motif. Isaiah 45, the prophet rebukes the nation. God silences their complaint with his sovereignty. What's their complaint? Cyrus? You've got to be kidding me, God. You're going to save me by Cyrus, who's a Gentile and a pagan? Surely you can raise up a new Moses. Or what about Messiah? So they're complaining about the way God's going to deliver them. Obviously, it's a second exodus from the Babylonian captivity, but they want someone else other than Cyrus. Be very careful, ladies and gentlemen, about framing how God is to treat you because he's the sovereign. I mean, I understand. It's, it's very difficult to deal with sometimes. It's also the greatest comfort in all of life. Their expectations were for Messiah or a new Moses, perhaps to reconstitute the glories of King David. Their national pride chafes at a Gentile who will deliver them. So verses 9 to 10, Isaiah 45 rebukes them. Verses 11 to 13, he answers them. Here's the answer. Isaiah 45, 9. Woe to the one who quarrels with his maker. An earthenware vessel among the vessels of the earth will the clay say to the potter, what are you doing? You can't do it that way, God. Do it this way. I don't like the way that you formed me. It's not fair. God is the potter. Makes us as he wills to make us. So Paul is affirming God's sovereign right over the nation. He is the potter. They are the clay. The potter has right over the clay to make a bit of whatever he wills to make. To display it for use, for his purposes and glory. I remember one time to my shame, I was at a friend of mine who was a professor at Oklahoma State University's home, and he had this... Uh, Picasso-like painting in his house, and uh, he had a lady friend there. I was critiquing, critiquing the uh, painting. What do I know about art? Well, you know, enough to know I didn't like Picasso. But, but, but leaving all that aside, to my shame, she was a painter. I was so embarrassed. Why is that? Why was I embarrassed? Because she could paint however she wants to paint. But that's the way we are in our culture. God, don't lose, use that shade in my life. Uh, God, why didn't you make me thus and such? Worship him, serve him. In his sovereign grace and mercy, he saved us. He was under no obligation. He did out of the sovereign good pleasure of his will through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. God is the divine right as creator to make of us as he wills. He can make us vessel for special use or common use. He can make a vessel prepared for destruction. By the way, that in and of itself defeats preterism. Or a vessel of mercy prepared beforehand for glory. It's his prerogative based on what? He's God. He's the creator. I'll give you an application of this. If you turn with me, if you would, in New Testament to the last book, the Bible, 
uh, first chapter, verse 18. It's the words of Christ and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and hell. He's in total control of eternal judgment. Chapter 3, verse 7. By the way, these are all Old Testament allusions. So what was true in the Old Testament is true today in our Savior. The same Savior, just different testaments. Nothing different whatsoever. Verse 7 third chapter. The angel church in Philadelphia write, he was holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens. God is in total control of our destiny. We owe him everything. The ultimate purpose of that for Christians is to humble us and to wed us to his worship and service because our eternal destiny was in his hands. The judge to save. Praise God. If you know Christ, he chose to save us in him, because of him, for him, by him alone. It's a point of praise. It's amazing that he saved any of us because none of us deserved anything. beautiful uh, reminder that in all of life you and I do not know the end but he does and he has the keys to the critical doors of heaven and hell and the fact that God opened for us through Jesus Christ the door of heaven should provoke us to pursue him to know him and to serve him not on our terms on his because he defines should inspire us to live for him to advance his kingdom and for all of the challenges in life and there are many uh, the answer to them all is in his son who came to ransom himself the one for the many every challenge in life that you and I confront in life Answer is the Son, always the Son, always the Son. Be many more answers in eternity, but sufficient for this evil day is the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? I trust it has. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9, The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you. He's speaking to the church, speaking to those who are in Christ. Patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Gospel. Then in this interim time, before the great doors of heaven and hell are opened, He's gathering his people, bringing them to repentance and faith in his son. I trust in his grace. He has granted you. He has granted you life. If not, Pharaoh is a witness.
And so Paul defeats uh, the charges that God is unjust and unfair. We are awash in a silly concept of fairness today. Here God is defining salvation on His terms. He owes us nothing that He saves any of us. Is the amazing display of His sovereign grace and tender mercies in His only begotten Son.